You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. into there. I want to welcome you as well, though. My name is Eric, and I get to pastor downtown at this campus of Bethel Bible Church, and we are delighted that you are here. This is church. This is where the people of God come together in the spirit of God to walk through the word of God and the word acts. The word does something above and beyond what you might sense, understand, or discern. The word of God does something because God promised that such would be the case. There will come a time, the Old Testament prophets said, when I will write my word upon their hearts and the new covenant will be the inauguration, the instigation, the initiation of that era. So the church is the new covenant community of the spirit. That's what the church is. And so one of the things that the church does because of that essence and nature is to walk through God's word. Now, sometimes we need a little extra help and nudge and boost to help us to make sense of God's word. And so for that, I want to call your attention to one of my favorite theologians of the 20th century, a man by the name of Robert Palmer. You see, in 1985, Robert Palmer released his greatest and biggest hit ever. You probably remember this. It was, might as well face it, you are addicted to love. Yes, had a music video that essentially propelled me through adolescence. Thank you, Robert Palmer. The chorus, for those of you that are already hearing the chorus refrain go through your mind, heart, soul, and body, the chorus, you already know the lyrics, most of you who are of a certain age, but I'm going to read them to you anyway because I think it's pertinent and it's, uh, oh, it's related to what we want to talk about this morning. The chorus and the refrain went like this. And since you do already know the tune, I'll spare you from actually singing it for you because I really do want you to come back next week. And the chorus goes like this. Whoa. You like to think that you're immune to this stuff. Oh yeah. It's closer to the truth to say you can't get enough. You know, you're going to have to face it. You're addicted to love. I really have no idea what this song is about. He makes some very startling claims that suddenly she's going to be completely his and I suppose surrender free will. It's a very disturbing song in a lot of ways. But the chorus, you see, I think is helpful to help us to navigate through a very, very difficult passage. This morning we're in the book of Romans, chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. And just about every writer, scholar, academic, theologian, and commentator will tell you that Romans 3, 1 to 8 is the most difficult paragraph in the book of Romans. And that's saying something. It is the most difficult passage in the book of Romans, and therefore that puts it in like the top five for the whole Bible. There's some really challenging, delicate, strange things that the Apostle Paul is going to say as he writes this letter to the churches in Rome. But I thought about it this morning, and perhaps what Paul is really doing as he writes this section is that what he's really doing is addressing a group of religious people and essentially singing some very early Robert Palmer to them. He didn't know Robert Palmer. Robert Palmer never had any idea that the Apostle Paul was thinking of him 2,000 years earlier. But I think what we're going to see in this paragraph can maybe be distilled into some Robert Palmer ease like this. As he addresses this group of moral high ground, religious, sort of self-righteous people that are sitting in the churches in Rome, perhaps the song could go instead like this. Whoa, You like to think that you're immune to this stuff. Oh, yeah. It's closer to the truth to say you can't get enough. You know, you're going to have to face it. You're addicted to law. Now, I know that's not what the actual song says, but I'm pretty sure that taken as a whole, this paragraph could be synthesized and distilled down into that. You're going to have to face it. You are addicted to law. See, in a context of law, which, by the way, is every other religion that has ever existed on the face of the planet, a construct of law says, if it's to be, it's up to me. 
if I'm going to have any kind of standing for eternity, if I'm going to spend any time in the presence of an almighty, then I have to accomplish some things. I have to do some things. I have to have more gold stars than I have red X's. It's up to me to obtain, to accomplish, to achieve, to earn, to amass, to whatever. That is a construct of law. There is a way that seems right unto a man, and that is that way. In the book of Galatians, Paul will call that kind of thinking stoicheia, that is elementary principles. We all come out of the box with that mindset, transactionally, that I have to do a thing in order to get a thing. It is the economy of the human race. It is instinctive that if I want something, I have to give or get something. I have to do something, I have to accomplish something. And Paul says, that's, that's, a, that's a construct, that's an economy of law. Might as well face it, you are addicted to law. This is, I can earn my way to God. I can accomplish what is required. I can get it done. And it's like an addiction. And I don't know if any of you have ever spent any time with friends, family members, neighbors, coworkers who are addicts. But when there is an addiction, the excuses always follow of why it's not working for them. What is addiction? It is, a, it is an inability to trust in anything else for happiness, fulfillment, meaning, value, significance, and worth. We're addicted to that human economy, that law construct. We're addicts. And so when we get challenged by the truth, we go, oh, come on, but, 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 and we make excuses and we make objections. That's what we do. So this morning, we're going to meet this passage head on. And Lord willing, we're going to see our big idea that it's not about me getting anything accomplished. The big idea from Romans chapter 3, verses 1 to 8, simply goes like this. God gets it done. God gets it done. Now, you're going to hear a whole lot of words about righteousness and faithfulness and faithlessness and truth and obedience. All of those mean is that God gets it done faithfulness of God does not mean that God somehow has bigger, better faith than you. That he believes because he's God. No, no, no. Faithfulness means he is true to what he says he will do, he will do. God gets it done. Now, I'm going to invite you, if you've got your Bibles, to open them to Romans chapter 3. We're going to read through the first eight verses of this chapter. As you're turning to Romans chapter 3, I want to remind you the overarching theme of the book of Romans. All 16 chapters, the theme of the book of Romans goes like this. It is the righteousness of God given freely to man in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, right there, it is a direct contradiction to the idea of law that says, I have to do something. But God gets it done. The book of Romans is telling us through 16 chapters that it is the righteousness of God given freely to man in the person of Jesus Christ. So, Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. This is God's word? This is God's word. Sometimes there are passages that are more precarious, that require a little bit more preparation. I'll tell you, as I've already mentioned, this has been a very difficult text for me to navigate. I've had a pretty challenging week trying to figure out how to preach this passage. In fact, we met Thursday night as an, uh, an elder board down here, and I told the guys as we sat on Thursday night, help as you've just heard read, it's a strange text and it uses a whole lot of wordplay, a lot of uh, philosophical 
iterations back and forth all over the place. But how does this passage point us to the gospel? I want to remind you at this campus all the time we say the gospel is the good news, the great story, the awesome announcement of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another. It's not a set of doctrines that you believe so that you can go to heaven when you die. It is a person. It is God accomplished a thing in the person of Jesus Christ. Now then, one of the things that's going to help us, I hope, is to be reminded that what Paul is doing in chapter 3 is still writing in the literary form of diatribe. I know this is not a word that we use very frequently, but he's writing in the form of diatribe in which a debater creates and constructs and sets up an imaginary objector. Some people will call this the straw man approach. Well, there is a person over here who would hold this, but I'm going to address those things and I'm going to undo them. This is a diatribe. You might remember that two weeks ago we happened to meet that imaginary objector. We named him Murray because, of course, his name is Murray. When I say we named him Murray, I mean I did, but I gave you credit for it. You're welcome. We call him Murray the imaginary objector. And Murray's going to represent all of these things that uh, Paul addresses in chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. So in fact, I have titled the entire sermon, Murray, because it's all about this imaginary objector that Paul is addressing. So we want to start in chapter 3, verse 1. We're going to walk through these verses, and then we'll try to unpack them and apply them. Chapter 3, verse 1 again says, Then... What advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? We have to remember that chapter and verse markers do not exist when Paul writes this. When Paul writes this, he's going straight through from a thought in chapter 2 right into chapter 3, and he's not breaking going, whew, I think I'll have some lemonade and some cookies, and then I'll pick back up later. No, he's going right straight through. Then... Paul has just taken the second half of Romans chapter 2 to say, hey, there is no value in pretense. It does you no good. There's no value in procedure. It does you no good. You could have been circumcised on the eighth day. You could know the Torah. You could be ethnically Jewish. You could have this heritage of the tribe of Naphtali. All these things. Your pretense does you no good. There is no moral high ground. Not only that, your procedure, your religious observances do you no good. None whatsoever. There is no pretense, there is no procedure that is satisfactory. So Paul undoes all of that. Now in our day we might not be thinking, well, I wear the... uh, I wear the little uh, collars around my neck and I wear the phylactery on my head and I have the armbands. And in our day we might say, well, the religious observances are that I was baptized or I take communion or I go to church or all those kinds of things. And Paul says, your pretense and your procedure do you no good. And so Paul now is going to engage in this conversation. Mary says, well then Paul, hold on. Chapter 3, verse 1, Paul, are you saying that there is no value to Old Testament biblical religion? The imaginary objector hears Paul walk through the end of chapter 2 and he says, wait a second, you're saying there's no value in my pretense or in my procedure. Are you saying there's no value in Jewishness? There's no value in biblical Old Testament religion? Now, so we're going to pause for just a moment and they needed to try to help us make a little bit more sense of what's going on in this chapter. I need to do a little bit of nerd work here to help make sense of this. Paul isn't just coming up with these arguments that he poses in chapter 3 out of nowhere just to show off. Even though Paul had not yet been to Rome in person and he didn't know these people, his teaching had absolutely gotten to Rome. What he had been saying, what he had been proclaiming all throughout his mission, uh, missionary journeys has made its way to Rome. The people and these churches in Rome were already talking about it. Remember, the churches in Rome have existed for probably 20 years by the time Paul writes this. We believe the churches in Rome were started when some Jewish people from Rome went to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. There, the Spirit comes, they receive, they believe. They go back to Rome, they plant churches somewhere around AD 36, AD 37. It's 20 years before Paul finally writes them a letter. They're already hearing about the things that he has been preaching and proclaiming 
throughout the synagogues in his various missionary journeys as he goes to Pisidian Antioch, as he goes to Lystra, Iconium, and Derbe, as he goes to Thessalonica, and Berea, and Corinth, and every place else. They're hearing that Paul will go, and he will debate with the Jewish people in the synagogue, and then they'll get furious with him and kick him out. And so Paul's teachings are being misconstrued, miscommunicated, and misunderstood. And so Paul sits in Corinth in A.D. 57, gets this report, we believe, from Priscilla and Aquila who had been kicked out of Rome, and they come to Corinth and tell Paul, hey, this is what the believers in Rome are saying about you. And so Paul pulls up his officer hat, pulls out his one good bullet like Officer Barney Fife, and says, I'm going to nip it! I'm going to nip it in the bud! And he puts pen to parchment and says, I'm going to proactively and preemptively address all of these objections that I'm hearing are going around in the churches of Rome because of my teaching that is being misunderstood, misquoted. Okay, so we got to have that understanding of all this stuff that Paul says here. We'll have a tendency to just gloss right over. So I think this is a collection of some of the things that Paul was hearing as he went through the synagogues preaching on his missionary journeys. But... I think there's even something else that is really personal and profound for Paul himself. In the book of Acts, chapters 7 and 8, we're introduced to a man named Stephen, who is a Hellenized Jew. He's Greek. His name's Stephanos. He's Greek. It's a Greek name. But he's Jewish in religion, and he is teaching and preaching the gospel in the synagogue of the freedmen in Jerusalem. Why does that matter? Why are we talking about this? Because Stephen and his family were apparently were from an area called Cilicia in what is today southeastern Turkey. Paul and his family were from Tarsus, which was in Cilicia. We know for a fact that the synagogue in Jerusalem where all the people from Cilicia gathered when they were in Jerusalem was the synagogue of the freedmen. And Luke is very careful to tell us in the book of Acts that Stephen, this unlearned, uneducated Greek Jew, would go into the synagogue and he would present and proclaim the gospel. And because of his spirit-inspired brilliance, nobody could withstand his arguments, including, we feel very strongly, Saul of Tarsus. That Saul of Tarsus was so enraged that this uneducated, unlearned Greek man would come into their synagogue and he would destroy them and devastate their objections and their arguments. So a lot of the objections that Paul raises in chapter 3 verses 1 to 8 in Romans, I personally believe these are his own. These are the things that he tried to stand against Stephen himself but could not and was so infuriated he gave approval for the murder and the killing of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. What am I trying to say? We've established that Murray is the imaginary objector, but I want to put a very fine point on it. I believe that Murray is the memory of Saul of Tarsus himself. Paul knows what he's talking about because it was him that used to hold these opinions and be a part of these word games and philosophical wrestling matches. It was him. I was reminded this week of an old writer, G.K. Chesterton, who used to write a detective crime series, and his great detective, his great hero, was Father Brown who was just the, the, the prince of detectives. He could solve any crime Father Brown could, but he didn't use any special powers of observation. He didn't use a magnifying glass. He didn't have a CSI department. He didn't have any other sort of trick. They asked him in these books, Father Brown, how did you discern? How did you detect? How did you solve this crime? How did you know what was going on in the mind and the heart of the killer or of the criminal? And Father Brown's response was always brilliant. Chesterton would use his voice through Father Brown. I looked at my own heart and knew what I was capable of. I know the darkness of the human heart. I know what it is capable of. That's what I would have done if I were the criminal. And so in the very same way, Paul, having been devastated, defeated, and undone by Stephen, we believe, serially in the synagogue, took all of that and says, I know how you are wanting to argue with the proclamation of the gospel because I did it. And having heard those arguments, then I encountered those arguments as I went to Lystra, Iconium, and Derby, and Pisidian, Antioch, and Thessalonica, and Berea, and so forth and so on. I know what you're thinking, and you're beginning to misconstrue, misapply, misquote, misunderstand what I have said. So let me be as clear as I can. It's not about you doing a thing. God gets it done. Is there value in Old Testament biblical religion? Yes. Now let me explain. This is verse 2. All right, we're back into the Word. Chapter 3, verse 2. Paul surprises us with his answer. He says, what advantage is there to 
basically, the, being a Jew or the value of circumcision, we would expect Paul in the New Testament to say, none whatsoever. It's a new age. It's a new thing. It's over and it's done. But he doesn't say that. He says, much in every way. Much in every way. So it's, a, it's an interesting translation, the word advantage or value. Really, the better translation would be privilege. Privilege. There is value, but not like unto salvation, not in terms of earning favor with God, but there is advantage. We talked about this last week. It's like you've been born on third base. You've been given privilege. You are the Jewish people. He says here in verse two, you have been the ones to whom you, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. You have a privilege you have a privilege. You are the ones entrusted with the oracles of God. Not because you deserved it. Not because you earned it. In fact, Deuteronomy says you are the last, the lost, and the least. You are the lowest. And to you, the one true God spoke. Paul starts off as if he's going to give a list. He says, well, to begin with, and then he gives no other privilege. He sort of takes a detour here, and he won't pick his list back up until Romans chapter 9. You can read that ahead as you like. But he's not going to finish his list until he gets to chapter 9. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the word of God. You people are the recipients with the revelation of God himself. That was to have been your national identity gathered around the centrality of the word of God. Learning it from your fathers. Learning it from your fathers who learned it from their fathers who learned it from their fathers. And what happens when that ceases to occur? See also the book of Judges. What happens when generations fail to teach their young people of the faithfulness of God? Societies implode and cease to exist. You were entrusted with this. It was the, the, the thing that should have made you say, we are a light to the dark, we are a sight to the blind, but instead you failed to deliver the message. You kept it for yourself and said, we have a God and he is Yahweh and he is and he's real and he's true and he's spoken to us. Now go away and die. And the rest of the world began to ridicule and revile the nation of Israel. This was entrusted to you to deliver. One of the great privileges that we have is being entrusted with the word of God. As we speak on the second floor, there are people that are depositing and discipling the word of God into little people because those children matter. They're not the future of our church. They are our church. And I want you to understand when an adult instructs a young person on the faithfulness of God through the word of God, it is spiritual warfare. I cannot overemphasize this. When a young person is equipped with the knowledge and the truth of the faithfulness of God, that he is, and there are people who love them, who are the evidences of the truth of what they're teaching, then for three and four and five and six generations down the line, spiritual warfare is being raged because there are people who are being equipped to hold the word of God. Listen, we're not just offering childcare down there. We're not just putting them in a padded cell and throwing Tootsie Rolls at them until I finish preaching. We are waging spiritual warfare, trying to impact our society for generations to come by equipping people. We have been entrusted with the Word of God, but simply having the Word of God is not enough. We have to do something with it. We have to take it into us. Paul says, you have been entrusted with the Word of God. You have been, the word is past tense. There was a time when it happened. God uttered a thing to you. The oracles, that's a technical term. It's kind of weird. Does he mean just the Old Testament scriptures? Well, certainly yes, but the word that he uses means more specifically the promises that God made. First to Abraham and then to Moses. Now, I'm making a big deal about this. It's not directly in the text, but we have to understand when Paul says the oracles, that's a word that means the, pr the promissory uh, utterances that God gives in the Old Testament. First to Abraham, chapter 12, 15, and 17 of Genesis, and then 500 years later in Exodus 19 on Mount Sinai to Moses. Abraham, I'm jumping ahead to chapter 4 of Romans, Abraham believed God, and God credited it to him as righteousness. In other words, God freely gave him righteousness simply because Abraham believed Remember the theme of the book of Romans? The righteousness of God given freely to man in the person of Jesus Christ. Abraham believed God and God says, 
I declare you righteous. I find you guilty. I declare you righteous. And everywhere that your foot touches as you walk around Canaan will be your land. 500 years later, Moses comes on the scene and God makes promise to Moses as well. And the people of Paul's day preferred Moses to Abraham. They're always going to ask, well, what about Moses? What about Moses? Because Moses gives them law. It's transactional, specifically Deuteronomy 28 to 31. If you do this, then I'll do this. If you do this, then I'll do this. If you do this, then I'll do this. And it seems very contractual and human economy. And so the Jews had carved out a system in which they could say, we'll do this, we'll be pretty good, better than most, and when we screw up a little bit, because I mean, come on, everyone screws up, we'll kill some pigeons, butcher a ram, it'll all be good, right? And we'll do it better than anybody else. We will be superior to them. Paul says, that was entrusted to you and you misused it. Instead, you took that revealed truth and you kept it to yourself. It's interesting, the great privilege, the advantage that they have is the centrality of the word of God. Listen, brothers, sisters, friends, we're a Bible church. We live in the 21st century in Western civilization. We have great access to the word of God, but having it collect dust on a coffee table is no good luck charm. The question that Paul seems to indict them with is, you say you have the word of God. Does the word of God have you? It found its home in Israel, or did it? Has it found its home inside of you? Well, Murray, the imaginary objector, is going to hear that and say, verse 3, I see, Paul, so what you're saying is we have privilege. We were God's chosen favored people. All right, well, my question to you, Paul, verse 3, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Murray essentially says, hold on, but some of the Jews that received the oracles of God, well, they were unfaithful with what, which they were entrusted, and a whole bunch of them and others didn't believe. They were unfaithful. So does that unfaithfulness cancel out God's faithfulness? In other words, Paul, does their disobedience destroy God's promises? Murray says, Paul, are you saying that their unbelief will keep God from getting it done? You're saying they deserve punishment. They deserve judgment. But you've also said that they're God's chosen people. What's it going to be, Paul? You can't have it both ways. There's a conflict and a contradiction here. Gotcha, Paul. <laughs> Except Paul has used that argument before and lost. So verse 4, we get Paul saying, the first of two times he'll use this expression, by no means. Your translation might say, certainly not. It might say, may it never be. It is the strongest, most emphatic Greek expression you can say. Meganoita in Greek. May it never even be conceived of. Oh, heck no in the New East Texas. <laughs> it's as strong as Paul can possibly say it. May it never even be conceived of. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. It doesn't matter if you have normalized this amongst your religious culture, Israel. If all of you are, that doesn't change the fact that God is true. God is righteous. He is not at all impugned by how bad you have disbelieved. Don't ever forget that. That's super important for us as well. Paul says it doesn't matter what the normativity of disobedience and disbelief is. God is still righteous. God gets it done. And then in this master stroke of spirit-inspired brilliance, Paul does something phenomenal. And he does it in a half verse. Romans chapter 3, verse 4, second half. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Okay, that's kind of weird. What's Paul doing here? Well, Paul's going to quote the former king of Israel, King David, from Psalm 51, verse 4. You may remember that Psalm 51 is David's psalm of confession following his grotesque sin of adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. And Paul's going to use this to show that God is faithful, not just in keeping his promises, God gets it done, but also in judging sin. God is faithful period. Regardless of any other context or circumstance, God is faithful. God gets it done. And what he does here is so subtle, it sort of misses some of what we get in the English, but it's absolutely amazing. It's like Paul super efficiently says, okay, this is the imaginary objection that you have. Okay, Jews are proud of their rich, rich heritage, and rightly so. Well, then let me choose the greatest. 
Let's choose your great king, King David. You remember King David, the, the one who a thousand years earlier was the man after God's own heart? Oh, yes, good King David. We love King David. He's the greatest. We love King David. Right, right. Well, David says, and Paul quotes him, God, you are just and you are justified in your words. You prevail when you judge. Paul says, David does not say when he sins, well, I've screwed up. I guess God's plan and his promise are thwarted. Now, I want you to understand what Paul is doing when he quotes David. David has been told and promised by God, David, your seed, your line will reign forever. My promises do not fail. I am faithful. To which David says, okay, got it. I think I'll kill that guy and sleep with that girl. Because that's what we do to God's bounty and his goodness and his grace. But there is consequence. The baby dies. David does not say, well, I've made such a mess of things that God can't fix this. God says, I don't, or David says, I don't understand it. I've made a huge mess. I am guilty. God, you are just. You are vindicated by my sin. Proves you are just. My sin proves that you are just. You are still faithful. I don't know how you're going to fulfill your promise, but I trust that you will. I've made such a mess that the instrumentality of the fulfillment of your promise seems to have died. Then it's my fault. And yet, God, you get it done. I don't know how you're going to do it, but you're going to get it done. And Paul just super succinctly drops that in. Hey, your own King David, you love King David? He understood that his sin vindicated the justice of God and that God still gets it done. Even if the entire nation and not just the king are liars, God is true. God is faithful. There's no mess so messy that God can't unmess it. Friends, that's the gospel because I've made some big nasty messes. And God is faithful. God gets it done. Not despite David's error, indeed, through David's sin. That's sovereignty. Well, then Murray hears that in chapter 3, verse 5, and he goes, uh-huh, uh-huh, I got you, I see what you're saying. But then, Paul, if our righteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? And then Paul says, I, and he throws up in his mouth, I can't believe I'm having to talk this way to you. I'm using human terms here. I'm just using human philosophies. I, I, it makes him so uncomfortable. The imaginary objection says, well, hold on. If it is our dark sin that makes an inky black backdrop so that the brilliance of God can be displayed, why is God so mad at us? We're making him look better. Do you follow the, the word game logic? By the way, again, I, this is why I take it that Paul probably used this against Stephen in Acts 7 and 8 and lost, and so he knows this objection. Why should God be some man? Why should God want to judge us? God shouldn't judge us. We're making him look good. And Paul says, I'm using human language here. Then verse 6, the second time, by no means may it never even be conceived, for then how could, judge, how could God judge the world? And Jewish people, you know that God's going to judge the world. That is your great grand hope. You've been the victims of persecution and pogroms for generations and generations. Your great hope is that God, who is good and just, will judge all of them. But what Paul has already done in chapter 2 is say, hey, the Gentiles who are uncircumcised, who are outside the covenant community of Israel, they're actually going to judge you that are inside because you're not actually faithful and believing. Your great hope is the judgment. Everybody knows that. You want God to judge. But if that's your argument, Paul says, how can he judge us because we're making him look good? Then Paul says, then you're saying that God can't judge the world at all, and you know that God's going to judge the world. Of course, verse 7 is one of the strangest verses in all of your Bible. But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Paul basically takes their upside-down argument, and he turns it upside-down and inside-out. Because he's a brilliant, brilliant uh, master of debate here. The thought goes like this. Paul says this. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. I hear where you're going with this, but hold it. If you think that sin is good and brings glory to God, then why are you mad at me? Why are you mad or why are you angry at my teaching and calling me a liar? If I'm a liar, then that means I'm bringing glory to God too, right? So why are you calling me a sinner and hating on me? 
Now again, I don't think Paul has a specific person in mind here, although he might. I think he's responding to all the allegations that are floating around with an attempt at nipping them all in the bud as much as he possibly can. And then finally, verse 8. And why not do evil that good may come? Yeah, Paul says, okay, I'm not even really going to address this one. This is so self-evident. I don't really have to waste any more pen on parchment to deal with this. I'm not going to explain everything away. This should be intuitively understood. If anyone actually thinks that they should do evil to accomplish good, then they clearly do not know this God of glory at all, and their condemnation is just. The thought had been, and perhaps you've heard this, some of the Jewish people in their rhetoric would say, well, if God's glory and his grace are demonstrated in his forgiveness of sin, then let's sin more boldly. We'll see more of that conversation in Romans chapter 6. The idea had been, hey, if you want to make an omelet, Paul, sometimes you got to break some eggs. To which Paul says, no, 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 no. God gets it done. If God wants an omelet made, he won't have to break eggs. I don't understand how the omelet gets made either, but God will get it done. We don't have to go outside of faithfulness and obedience to try to help God out. We do not do bad so that good will flourish. That is ridiculous. And anyone who says so, their condemnation is just. I will never forget... Uh, summer of 2007, I was in Copper Mountain, Colorado, speaking with a young man at a student camp, and he told me, this whole thing is the biggest joke. Haven't you people read your Bible? He said, I'm going to continue to have sexual relations with my girlfriend, and God has to forgive me. It's the greatest deal in the world, man. To which I tried to not choke him out, because that would have been bad but to simply quote Romans 3.8, then your condemnation is just. You do not know this God, but know this, that God will get it done. To think of God in that errant way reveals a heart sickness, a mind sickness. But this passage exists to clarify all of the objections we might possibly try to bring up. God gets it done. So let me just give a few concluding principles here. Hopefully some applying takeaways for all of us. And the first one is very, very simple. It goes like this. I'm Murray. Don't look so pious. You are too. I'm Murray. Because Saul of Tarsus had been Murray. I'm Murray. Oh, I get it. We're probably not sitting around offering up philosophical word games as objections to the gospel. But the way that we actually live our lives, a lot of the time demonstrates that in practical reality, we might as well face it, we're addicted to law. We might as well face it, we're addicted to law. We don't really like it when the gospel of grace emerges and reveals just how reliant we still are on our own efforts to get through life on our own terms. God, I'm sure glad that Jesus came and died for my sins, and he's going to take me to heaven one day when I die. But in the meantime, I just need a little boost every now and then. I got this. You just need to, like, bless me here and there. I'm going to be good. I'm going to pay my taxes. I'm not going to speed through school zones. And you're going to keep them blessings coming, right? I got a new business deal coming up. I'm not going to cuss at least until the Oklahoma game's over. And then you're going to bless me. And we're Murray, addicted to law. We don't mind when the gospel reveals that we are sinners in general, but when it reveals the specific areas of our sin, that doesn't feel very good. That really gets under our skin and begins to penetrate and to scratch quite a bit. We don't like it when God's word or God's spirit convicts us that. Let me get specific. We're liars. All of us are liars. You may be thinking, not me. <laughs> Guess what? You're a liar now. We're liars. All of us have tried to deceive our bosses. And I work in a church and I still do this. We try to deceive our bosses or even our families or our friends or our neighbors that we're actually better than we are. We posture, we inflate, we escalate how good we are at a thing or what we can do. We're, we're, we're liars. We're being deceptive. And when convicted, our knee-jerk objection, like every addict is, oh, come on, everybody does that. It's normal. God, you have no right or no business in that part of my life which the Apostle Paul would say, even if it's normal and every person is a liar, God is still righteous. Not only are we liars, we're thieves. We're thieves. We have stolen from our workplaces. To be clear, I work in a church. I have not stolen from our workplace. I'm just saying in general. We've stolen from our workplaces, perhaps even our government. 
through the evasion of some sort of taxes, and we've taken what was not ours. And when convicted, our knee-jerk objection, like every addict, uh, I just a little bit of fudging on my expense report, a little bit of charging to the company, which was really nothing to do, whatever that is, is, oh, come on, this is actually a part of my compensation. They don't treat me fair or appreciate me enough. Come on, everybody does this. God, you have no right, no business of that part of my life. Well, even if it is normal and every person is a thief, God is still righteous. We're all adulterers. We invite images into our minds, into our hearts, that woo our affections and our attention away from our spouses. And when we get convicted by that through the Word, through the Spirit, well, we... We say, well, it's, it's not that big of a deal. Everybody's watching that series on Netflix. Everybody has Hulu. Everybody's doing that. It's not that big a deal. Oh, come on, I can handle this. And we object to the power of the gospel. God, you have no right, no business in that part of my life. I'll handle this part. You handle the getting me to heaven part. To which the Apostle Paul would say, even if it's normal and every person is an adulterer, God is still righteous. We could go on and on. We're unforgiving. I'm not willing to pay the debt of somebody else who doesn't deserve it. Oh, wait. Even though someone has done that for me. We're haughty. We're arrogant. We're angry. We're ethnocentrically superior. I'm right because I'm a part of this group and this group is better than yours. God, you have no right to question me on that. That's my attitude and I'm right. You just get me to heaven. I object to this thing called the gospel. Instinctively, we raised an objection and thought, God, you have no business messing with that. In fact, every time we sin, it is because at some level we fail to believe the gospel and with our lives, like the addicts to law that we are, we object. We said, no, 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 no. Leave that part alone. I'll handle this. And you're welcome. You're welcome to have me on your team. Now, you may hear all of these things and go, hold on a second, how dare you say that to me? I am no liar, I am no thief, I'm no adulterer, or any of the rest of that stuff. I was baptized at the age of seven, and I go to church as often as I want. It's good-ish, not really. Your level of moisturization when you were seven has never saved a single human soul, not in the least. The question is, are you Christ's? I pray that the gospel would truly break forth in all of your life, in every realm, and blast out every pocket that you're trying to preserve. Because, point number two, these are very brief now, number, number two, God will judge the world. It's one of Paul's points. Judgment is coming. If you presume that you will avoid judgment simply because you can recite some creeds, then you are mistaken. Don't presume that because you did a thing or said some stuff in your youth that you are Christ's and that he's lucky to have you on his team. The day is coming and is drawing ever closer when he will set everything right that's wrong in the world, including those who are not his. He will judge. And the scriptures are hauntingly, chillingly clear. There will come a time when he will say, and I quote, away from me, I never knew you and judgment will be yours. I encounter so many people in the 21st century that say, I love Jesus, I know Jesus, I like Jesus, I want to know Jesus. I go, great, does he know you? Because that's the deal at the end when he says, I never knew you, you wanted to know me, but I was wanting to know, to know you, that deep pocket that you have preserved, that dark corner, that crevice of your interactions on social media, the stuff that you watch, read, and encounter, those relationships that you know are not God-honoring and spouse-affirming. I don't know you. I know you don't want to go to hell. I don't want you to either, but I don't know you away from me. And so you have to ask yourself the question, am I Murray still? Am I Saul of Tarsus still? Do I know a bunch of stuff or am I Christ's? Do I believe the gospel that I lack for nothing? He has given me all that I need. I need grasp for nothing. Have I truly been judged already at the cross? Or will I encounter judgment as yet one day in the future? Do I believe that what God demands of me, he gave me freely, and that I bring nothing to the equation that does me any good, but that he loves me anyway? 
If that's you, if that's your story, then I want you to know that the only reason you can possibly believe that is because the Spirit of God has quickened your heart and mind to understand and to grasp and to seize as if it's the truest thing in the universe, because it is. And if you don't believe that, then I want you to know that this whole week I have been praying that the Spirit would move and soften your heart that you would believe it, that you would not rely on the things that you have tried to do good and to not harm anybody, but that you would actually receive the gospel. Which leads to the third and final point. God will save the elect. Oh, he will judge the world, but he also will save the elect. So then, knowing that, you can live life now in the central sphere of the gospel. You lack nothing. What you have is enough in Christ. And the receipt of the gospel is the only cure for our addiction to law. It is the only thing that record scratches that human economy of I must give or do in order to get. No, he's given freely. The gospel is the only cure for the addiction of our addiction to law. God will raise us up at the last day and we will ultimately and finally be set right. As I mentioned, I have struggled and studied on this passage more than any other passage, I think, in years. It has broken me in a lot of ways where I have said, God, I yield, I tap out, I surrender, I can do no more. I, I don't know how to preach this passage, as if you couldn't tell. I don't know how to preach this passage. And so last night, I finally yielded. I surrendered. I said, okay, I got to go. I went on a bike ride with Joshua. That's often where I get to clear my head and just sort of smooth out my thoughts when I'm on my bike. And that's also why I wreck all the time, because I'm not paying attention. And trees are non-negotiables, I have found. <laughs> But I was out there going, okay, Lord, just praying as I was riding. Okay, Lord, I, I, I need some help. I don't know how to preach and proclaim your word such that it does not return void because of my limited communication. And it hit me. How is this gospel, how does this point to the gospel? Because of course it points to the gospel. Even though it's a strange, philosophically wordplay kind of passage, of course it must point to the gospel. And I thought, oh, of course, it's pointing me to Jesus. Now, Paul hasn't mentioned Jesus in this passage, but any faithful proclamation of the word since the closure of the canon of Scripture must show us how the oracle of God that was entrusted to us is the living oracle, Jesus himself. How does he demonstrate this passage in his own life? And I'm reminded of Luke chapter 4, Matthew chapter 4. Jesus has been baptized. The Father has affirmed him. I am pleased with him. Listen to him. At that point, the Spirit of God takes him into the wilderness where he fasts and prays for 40 days, after which time the enemy, Satan, comes to tempt him three times. But it's not really three times. It's really one temptation offered in three flavors. The temptation is, you can have the crown, just don't go to the cross. You can have all of this good stuff. Just please don't do it God's way. I'm offering you the kingdom, Jesus, now. Look at all the suffering. There's people who are being crucified unjustly by the Romans. There are people who are starving. There are people on the other side of the world who are not going to hear about you. They're going to die. I will offer you the kingdom now. And by the way, Satan had the authority to offer that. Since Adam abrogated his rule in the Garden of Eden in chapter 3 of Genesis, Satan has that opportunity. And Jesus, hearing all three of these things, says, may it never be. He could have had a good thing. He could have broken a few eggs to have some great omelets. He could have brought the kingdom right there. And then that's why he came to usher in the kingdom of God. But can you imagine the conversation with the Father? Hey, Father, listen, this is kind of kind of weird but we're going to do a little bit of evil so that good may abound. May it never be. I don't know how this is going to work exactly, but I'm going to die. The promise that God has made in me, I'm going to die. God's going to get it done. It's going to look like he lost, and you're going to triumph. You're going to dance for a couple days, Satan, but God's going to get it done. It's going to look super messy. God is faithful. Despite all of the disobedience, the disfaithfulness, the depravity, God gets it done. So look, I don't know all of you in this room, but if you're here and you're not known by Jesus, would you believe the gospel? The righteousness that God demands, he offers to you freely. Sign here, press hard, third copy is yours, that's it. That's the deal. You don't got to bring and show them how good you can do anything. That's it. And 
he will raise you at the last day. For the rest of you who have been believers for a very long time, but you have fallen back into a rut of religiosity, where I'm going to do this, God, now you better bless me. (laughs) You're not getting anything done. You've got a really well-worn hamster wheel that accomplishes precisely nothing. I invite you to believe the gospel, that you would be the kinds of people that would so joyously live in the sphere of the finished offering of the gospel that the rest of our community would be desperate to find out about the hope that you have. God gets it done. May he get it done in you. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this hard passage. I pray, God, that the words that I have spoken will not in any way cloud or confuse your word. I pray that all gathered will have heard a better sermon than the one I just preached and that you will impress upon our hearts that through this difficult text that you are good and no matter what messes we have made before our conversion, after our conversion, you're still going to get it done. You will set things right that we have messed up. You will raise us at the last day. You are good We have no need of wondering philosophically if it is so. It is so. So God, would you continue by your spirit to impress that upon these, your people. If there is some who who do not know you, who are not known by you, I do pray, God, that you will move by your spirit right now and lead them into a saving knowledge of your son. They would step out of death into life, out of darkness into light. And that there would be someone that they know and love and trust that would speak additional words of truth into them. For the rest of us, Father, who have lived lives of murriness here and there, telling you that you have no business nor right into those parts of our lives, would all of those pockets and corners be exposed to the gospel? Would you change us, transform us for your name's sake? We pray all these things the only way we can, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hey, thanks so much for being with us. I want to ask you, if you would, please, to stand for a word of benediction, and then we will be dismissed. I want to remind you, if you're not involved in teaching our leading, loving, guiding, guarding our young people, we've got someone out in the foyer that would love to talk with you about that, to wage spiritual warfare as we, for generations, inject life into this community. With that, I will benedict from the book of Ephesians. Now, He who is able to do far more abundantly than everything we ask or imagine, may he do it, may he get it done in you. God bless. You're dismissed. Have a great week. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.